Well, uh, again, it's Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, of, says the, Lord the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kyle. I was looking around the room when the verse talked about God spreading down on the faces of the people. The reactions did not disappoint. Do not... Do not worry, we will get there, but not right away, so try to focus on anything that comes before that. So good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the elders here, and I'm filling in for a short series for our lead pastor, Steve, while he's on paternity leave. Yes, they had the baby. She was right here. (laughs) Shout out to Vin. Uh, But today is the second part in our series in Malachi, and as we talked about last week, Malachi is speaking to the priests and people of Israel after their return from Babylon. So it's the last book chronologically in the Old Testament, and it's the last book in the Old Testament canon, which puts it right before the Gospel of Matthew, which is the year-long series that we're taking a break from. So also, as we covered last week, Malachi is structured into a series of disputations or charges that God brings against the people of Israel through the prophet Malachi. So last week, the first charge that we talked about was against the cheap and polluted worship Israel was offering as a result of their apathy and idolatry of false gods. So today's charge uh, from God is the charge of unfaithfulness. And as we read in the passage, this is a double charge of unfaithfulness. So first God charges the priests with being unfaithful in their teaching and ministry. And then God charges the people of Israel with unfaithfulness in their marriages. 
we'll see today that those two things are very much connected. And just to be a, a bit of an open book with all of you, part of my aim here today is to help us understand all the ways in which we are unfaithful. Even if we're not in a position of pastor or we've never been unfaithful in a marriage or even if we're married at, uh, for that matter. So because it's only when we're convicted of our unfaithfulness that we can see our need for a faithful savior. So the sermon is simply going to follow the contour of the passage. First, we'll look at the unfaithful priests. Second, the unfaithful spouses. And lastly, the faithful savior. So the unfaithful priests. Imagine the scene here for a minute. The prophet Malachi is likely in a public place delivering this message, and in attendance are the priests and many of the people. The priests are in their priestly garments and that distinguish their type of service from the Lord, and Malachi just gets finished calling out the general population for their polluted worship. Last week's text didn't really touch on the priests at all, so at this point in Malachi's message, they're probably feeling like they've avoided anything too, too bad. But then God, through Malachi, turns his gaze to the priests and charges them with such a heinous, egregious violation of the covenant that it would have floored everyone in the room. I'm sure the lay people were feeling embarrassed for the priests. So if you're like me, I trend towards the more non-confrontational, introvert, sensitive side of things. And when something embarrassing is happening to someone else, I feel like I get more embarrassed than that person. So unsurprisingly, the, the Scott's Tots episode of The Office was just... That was a one and done for me. I will never watch that again. If you don't know what I'm talking about, maybe don't watch it. <laughs> you will be incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> but so Malachi here is laying into the priest and floors the audience by naming their sin. And it would have made everyone deeply uncomfortable. And he describes it in the first section of this passage, verses 1 through 9. And his charge is that they are unfaithful in their ministry and teaching. It's the very thing that they're there for. It's like you have one job and you're not doing it. It's like saying to the mailman, you are unfaithful in carrying the mail, right? So they are, the very thing that God is calling them to do, they're being unfaithful in. So how bad was it? Malachi indicates it was pretty bad. Verses seven and eight say, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. So the Lord states explicitly that they're engaging in false teaching and causing the people to stumble and sin. So we don't know what exactly kind of false teaching they were doing, but we do have some clues, foremost among them the content of last week's text. So clearly the priests were at least allowing polluted worship, if not approving of it. Right, So they were looking the other way at these sacrifices, which no doubt led to complacency and a faulty understanding of the law on behalf of the lay people. One commentator put it this way. Somehow the people had the idea that these things were not serious sins or that they could do them and get away with them. So the priests were cultivating this culture of sinful nonchalance towards the holiness of God and the law. So the sin of the people is very much connected to the poor teaching of the priests. We have another clue in this passage as to the nature of their unfaithfulness, and it's found in verse 9. It says, And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. Scholars and commentators aren't unified as to the nature of the priest's favoritism, but it's obvious in some way, shape, or form they were showing favoritism towards a group of people or a person. Typically, the underlying root cause of that is when fear of people displaces fear of God. 
And so we have a priesthood engaging in false teaching and lacking fear of God. And then God gives his punishment in verse 3. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So everyone in this room was like, wait, what? Uh, So at first glance, it seems like God is getting a little petty here and weirdly creative with his punishment. But here's what is happening. To the polluted offerings, as well as the dung of the polluted offerings, the polluted offerings of the people are unclean, right? So God is saying that he will by extension count the priests now as unclean. And since a priest has to be in a state of cleanliness to go before God into the temple and perform his duty, what's happening here is God is threatening, them, threatening to remove them from their post. Not to mention that since the priests were likely eating some of this polluted offering, they were really unclean already. So a couple of application points here, the first one perhaps being the most obvious, which is that teachers of God's word and ministers must operate in right fear of God and rightly handle God's word. So the Bible is very clear that pastors and elders will be held to a higher account by God for their care of the flock and for their teaching. And unfortunately, we, we do live in a country and society where the church has been deeply fractured and hurt by false teaching. And as much as I and I'm sure everyone else in this room hates to admit, the same thing can happen here uh, in our church if we aren't faithful and vigilant on both sides of the leadership member line. And so the elders have vowed before God to rightly handle the word, and we do our best to be accountable, humble, and fearful in our teaching. But every member in this church has a vital role to play as well, and that is to hold the leaders accountable and ensure that we are not abusing authority or engaging in any false gospel. And if we are, there are systems and processes that we have in place to address such false teaching or abuse. I can tell you that I'm really grateful that we have a congregation that cares so deeply about how God's word is handled. And yeah, I would just encourage all of you to to continue in that, to continue to keep us accountable, to be fearful before God. So that's the first application. God's ministers must rightly handle God's word, and the church must keep its leaders accountable for any sort of false teaching or abuse of authority. The second application here takes a bit of drawing out. So if you recall, Ezra and Nehemiah were chronologically just a few years before Malachi, and it was in Ezra where the prophet Ezra discovered the priests themselves had married foreign wives. So it wasn't just the people, as we'll talk about in the next section. Ezra showed up on the scene and found that the priests themselves were engaging in this marrying of pagans. And I want to point out something that author Hannah Anderson notes. So we had the priests engaging in sin in their private lives through intermarrying with pagan spouses. And then a few years later, Malachi rebukes them for corrupt teaching and ministry. Right? So they sinned in private first and eventually engaged in public sin later. And this indicates the biblical reality that sin in one's private life can affect their public ministry. It's a a classic lie of the enemy to think that we can cordon off or compartmentalize our sin and just keep it in our head or in our private lives. This is also one of the reasons why we should care a great deal about the morality and character of not just our pastors, but also our elected officials or anyone in a leadership position. Private life sin will turn into public sin and poor leadership. Last application in this section is simply this. We are all the unfaithful priest. So the Bible calls every Christian a priest many times. Uh, We're called a royal priesthood in 1 Peter 2, Revelation 1, and priests of God and Christ in Revelation 20. 
And while 99% of the people in this room are not engaged in full-time ministry, I didn't know Jeff Toomer was going to be here, so that figure is now 98%. I'll have to revise that in my notes. While most people in here are not engaged in full-time ministry, we are still engaged in full-time ministry. So as followers of Jesus, we represent the gospel to everyone we come into contact with. And what people see from us is often all they know about Jesus. And that's a pretty sobering thought. So we're the unfaithful priests whenever there's a disconnect between how we act in public versus private. We're the unfaithful priest whenever there's a disconnect between our personas in the workplace and at church. We're the unfaithful priest when we minimize certain parts of the gospel because they're not acceptable by today's morality standards. We're the unfaithful priest when we show partiality to parts of the gospel that we like but not others. We're the unfaithful priest when we try to make following God a little easier or more convenient. And we're the unfaithful priest when our fear of other people displaces our fear of God. What we need is a faithful priest. So now let's turn to the next section, the unfaithful spouse. So while the priests were accused of unfaithfulness in their teaching and ministry, now Malachi turns back to the people and takes them to task for an issue that is longstanding enough to be read about in other minor prophets, the intermarrying of Jews with pagan spouses or spouses who believed in other gods. We also learn here the awful detail that some of these Jews were already married to Jewish spouses and had left the wives of their youth and religion to engage in these adulterous unions. So to address something at the outset here, it can be easy to kind of read this and other places in the Old Testament and see God's disapproval of Jews marrying outside Israel and think that God is wanting to keep the nation pure from an ethnic or racial standpoint. However, we see in these verses, particularly verse 15, that that's not what's going on here. This is not an ethnic-based accusation that God is making, but rather he specifies that the people were marrying spouses who worshipped other gods. That's why it says in verse 11, he has married the daughter of a foreign god. So the goal here, again, was not an ethnically homogenous state, but rather a godly one. So we observe this down in verse 15. And what was the one God was seeking? Godly offspring. So God's desire was for faith in him to be carried on to the next generations, and by introducing other gods into the family unit, it decreased the chances of that happening. It introduced a false god into a house that was supposed to be dedicated to the one and only God. A common sentiment in today's church is that dating or marrying an unbeliever, while maybe not ideal, won't be catastrophic or have some detrimental effects down the road. And this is obviously a very complex issue that is multifaceted. (coughs) Excuse me. And the text here really just touches on one of those angles, so that's what I'll stick to today. (coughs) The Bible counsels against this, this sentiment, and in this passage we see that one of the effects such a union can have is on the faith of the children. And I think, especially if it's a dating relationship, we're reluctant to view that far ahead. And take the mindset of, oh, you know, like, I'll I'll cross that bridge when I come to it if this relationship happens to work out, which odds are it probably won't, so it doesn't really matter at this point. But I would humbly submit to you that this mindset minimizes the sobriety and seriousness of the call we have to instruct our children in the Lord. So in Deuteronomy, it says to saturate the lives of our children with the instruction of the Lord and to have him be preeminent in the household. That's just really, really hard to do when one person has a completely different view and foundation of reality than the other. 
but I want to encourage those that the situation might be applicable to them. So maybe you became a Christian after marrying your spouse, or your spouse hasn't decided to follow Jesus, or maybe your spouse walked away from the faith, or any number of the difficult and complex realities that exist out there. So first, I, w I just want to encourage you to, to keep going and to persevere in the faith, because God finds it so, so beautiful to him. This is also a great place for the church to come in. So not only should the church support and disciple you as an individual image bearer, but one of the other duties of a covenant member of a church is to aid in bringing up children and pointing them to God. So when we dedicate children here, as John talked about and as we'll do in a few weeks, we have covenant members affirm their duty to also point the child to Christ in both formal and informal settings. So God's family was designed to care for everyone in every situation. There's no no family dynamic that is ever too messy or complex for God to work in. So back to the unfaithful spouse. So we see the Jews were marrying pagan spouses, and God says there in verse 11 that as a result, the people have profaned the sanctuary. They have violated the covenant by doing this, and to make matters worse, the next paragraph clearly states that these were not their first marriages. They had left the wives of their youth, the text says, and broke that covenant as well. So now they're breaking multiple covenants, the covenant of marriage and the covenant of Old Testament law. And verse 13 shows us the real-world effects of their sin. It says, You covered the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. The Hebrew in this verse is a little tricky, so at first glance it seems like the husbands are crying because God uh, does not regard their, their offering anymore, but the grammar indicates that it's actually the wives that are weeping and groaning, so they are the ones that are groaning with a pain too deep for words. And now, as a result, God does not regard the husband's worship offering, so their unfaithfulness in marriage nullifies the efforts of their attempted worship. This is somewhat similar to the passage in First Peter where God says he will not regard the prayers of husbands who do not treat their, their wives with love and honor. And God drives the point home in verse 16 saying the unfaithful spouse is covered with a garment of violence. He's pointing out rightly that unfaithfulness in marriage mars the sanctity and wholeness of a family. So some plain sense applications here. The first is that for those who are married, do you guard your marriages? It says so in verse 16, the last verse in this passage. It says, so guard yourselves in spirit and do not be faithless. The Bible is wisely saying that we need to guard our hearts first, as that's the first line of defense. And the verb guard there in Hebrew can also be translated as to watch vigilantly or carefully. So like a sentry or night watchman, we should constantly be on the lookouts for threats to our marriages and our hearts. The enemy hates marriage because it points to Jesus and the church and therefore will stop at nothing to destroy them. So things, simple things like having a mentor couple speak into your marriage, praying and reading the Bible together, living together in church community, and spending quality time together that is not just looking at the same glowing screen at the same time go a really long way. Because even if we don't commit actual marital unfaithfulness with another person, things like emotional affairs with colleagues or sexual escapes like porn are also adulterous and waiting for us around every corner. So despite the obvious application to those who are married, I do want to emphasize here, though, that this passage cannot be more relevant to all of us because each of us, every single day, are the unfaithful spouse. 
See, the, the Bible is clear that we as the church are Christ's bride and Christ is the bridegroom. And we break our covenant with God each time we sin. Unfaithfulness is breaking that covenant. It is choosing something else over Jesus and his love. And when we sin, we declare ourselves as God and put ourselves on the throne, therefore acting like God either doesn't exist or isn't deserving of our obedience. And so we are the unfaithful spouse whenever our heart chooses something over him. A covenant is a home. It's a a shelter of safety, a place where we can be loved freely without precondition or merit. And Jesus offers this in his family. And yet we choose our own pursuits over his call. We choose our desires over his. We stiff arm the gentle call of Jesus and run headlong into the empty promises of this world. We betray Jesus' work on the cross and think we can earn our salvation. We turn our backs on the message of grace and embrace legalism in our private lives. Or we scorn obedience and God's rules for life and choose to sin because we tell ourselves it doesn't really matter. So as Henry Nouwen put it, we're the unfaithful spouse whenever we go look for, looking for home in places we shouldn't. We're the unfaithful spouse whenever we look for home in places we shouldn't. And as Jesus so often asked in the book of John, what are you seeking? Where are you looking for home? What arms are you running to for comfort, for validation, for shelter, or for joy, or for fulfillment? Because if it's not Jesus, and it's so, so often not, then we're the unfaithful spouse, spurning the one who is faithful. And that brings us to our last section, the faithful Savior. So how does that faithful Savior, Jesus, respond to our infidelity, both as the unfaithful priest and unfaithful spouse? So as we covered, our infidelity and unfaithfulness to God renders us completely and wholly separated from him. And Jesus, the Son of God, was the only person in human history to be wholly faithful to God. And by going to the cross and taking on our sin, our unfaithfulness, he takes on our standing as the unfaithful priest and unfaithful spouse. After taking on our sin, God deemed Jesus to be unfaithful, and Jesus was cut off from God in the most painful experience imaginable. Right, imagine actually being the faithful one and having the perfect record, but receiving the punishment deserved for the cheat, the adulterer, the corrupt priest, the sinner. So why did he do it? He did it so that we could receive his identity as the faithful priest and spouse. He paid the penalty for the unfaithful sinner, and in doing so, God now sees us as faithful. His record as being holy and purely faithful is now our record before God. So we see how Jesus treats those who betray him. He dies for them. He loves them. He likes them. He eats with them. And because of Jesus' death on the cross, God treats sinners as faithful because we now have Jesus' identity as the faithful priest and spouse. I think perhaps, though, one of the greatest struggles of the Christian life is to know in your head that Jesus' record as the faithful one is yours, but in your heart, it's, it's just so hard to believe. Right? We hear that Jesus loves us despite our sin and, despite, and finds us beautiful despite our ugliness and sin, and think, well, in my head, I, I guess that makes sense, right? You know, I see how scripture and the cross and, and how that works out formulaically on a napkin. But I take one look into my heart and I see my unfaithfulness, my adultery, my corruption, and say, 
No way. It, it, it just it can't be true. And I think one of the reasons why it's so hard to believe that Jesus could love us and find us beautiful is that we know how we would feel or do feel towards those who consistently betray us. We might love them, right? We, mu- we might even sacrifice a little for those who hurt us. But there's usually this reservation of sorts, this, this kind of calculation or self-protection behind the love that we offer to these people. And so we assume deep down the same must be true for Jesus. The same, surely he can't love me after all I've done. Surely he might withhold or hedge his bets a little bit about me, the unfaithful one who cheats on him day after day. But he doesn't. That's not who Jesus is. The love of Jesus is not one of hedge bets or restraint, but rather like a pent-up dam ready to burst forth and wash over us at even the smallest request of a sinner. Unrestrained love towards sinners and sufferers is at the very center and heart of who Jesus is, and he yearns for us to give him any opening to express it. We find this so, so hard to believe, right? We think we're so unlovely, so messy, so frustrating to Jesus. Surely the love of God is only fit for a great person, but not for me. But that reservation is precisely what qualifies you for the love of Jesus, right? The realization that we're sinners is Holy Spirit breathed and puts us squarely in the category of being able to be loved by Jesus, And our response to that is usually, but I keep messing up. I feel loved by Jesus one moment, and then I go and sin. I feel loved by Jesus one moment, and then I go and sin again. But Jesus doesn't tire of giving us grace. He doesn't get tired of doing the same thing over and over again like we do. Listen to what G.K. Chesterton writes, and, and let this sink into your bones. He says, because children have abounding vitality... Because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated again and unchanged. Sorry, they they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. Amen. (laughs) For grown-up people are are not strong enough to exalt in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the internal appetite of infancy. If God never gets tired of making daisies, he never gets tired of loving you and offering you grace. Even when we mess up again and again, it is his very nature to rush in and embrace us the second we ask for forgiveness. And he will do this every day you live on this earth and will never get tired of it or drag his feet. He runs each time with reckless abandon towards the child that comes home. So we'll close with this. How do we know this is true? And to be actual reality. We see the beautiful, glorious proof of this plan in Revelation. The Apostle John describes what sinners saved by Jesus looks like at the coming of Christ in Revelation chapter 7 and 19. And this is what he said. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deed of the saints. This is the beautiful reality that Jesus grants us, purity through the forgiveness of sins on the cross. So the white that the people are wearing symbolizes purity and faithfulness, which we will be clothed in. So the church, i.e. us, are the bride of Christ, and Revelation shows us that it's really true, that Jesus, through his blood, has washed us clean and pure, and we receive his identity as the faithful and pure spouse. And every moment we seek him through our thoughts, spirit, word, and deed is a piece of righteousness that we will wear at the end of time. See, the perfect son of God can only have a perfect, spotless bride. And we may have been the unfaithful priest many times. And we know we are constantly the unfaithful spouse. But the proof is right there in what I read. Look no further than the ultimate reality described by scripture. Jesus' faithfulness is now our faithfulness. Jesus wants you. He finds you beautiful. He will never stop coming after you. And through his blood, you are declared faithful forever and will wear the pure cloth of righteousness as his bride at the end of time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are and your plan to reconcile us from before we were even born. We thank you that this is the plan that you've decreed throughout history. We thank you that you are a God who wants to be in relationship with us. We thank you that you are a God that never gets tired of us. 